Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we are um, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians 14 this morning. And as we um, begin here, I want to do a little bit of review because we have taken, um, we've taken a, a few detours along the way through this section. This has been a little slower than I had anticipated. I find myself every week... Um, continuing to ascend the mountain of interpretive issues, uh, and it is, uh, it is heavy lifting um, in some ways, and it, it's good, and we didn't mention this in Equipping Hour, but I think it's worth mentioning now, is because uh, we talked about, you know, how certain uh, false doctrines and things are put forward, and how that forces the church to actually reflect on true, what's true, and, it, and so in some ways, while we don't want controversy, and we don't, certainly don't want false teaching to proliferate, the fact that it does proliferate, even in the, that reality, God uses that to force us as Christians to search the scriptures and to see what is what do we really believe, and you know to refine those truths. And if you look at through church history again and again and again, you see this example after example of uh, theological controversy, debate, and de, you know discussions around the the meaning of certain passages or portions of Scripture, and yet that has borne the fruit. You know, look at the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, Scripture, all those things have been hammered out over, uh, over debates. And so, so we can, uh, while we certainly don't want debate in terms of, of false teaching, we can still see how God uses that for good. And these chapters are contentious. They are hotly debated in certain circles. And, um, and so I think a lot of that comes from just um, not searching the scriptures and using them cohesively. But I think, it, you know, one thing that's worth pointing out is, um, is our chapter and verse divisions in, the, in our contemporary English Bibles, those chapter and verse divisions, they don't show up in this kind of present form until the 1500s uh, during the time of the Reformation. So there's nothing inspired about chapter divisions or verse divisions in, in our English Bibles. And while they're very helpful, and obviously they allow us to navigate the text and, and to reference the text quickly and efficiently, the drawback of that is that they can chop up the text into a lot of different pieces and cause us to miss the overall, the, the larger flow, especially in some of these letters uh, of the authors. And it's like a house that's kind of been segmented up in all the walls and doors everywhere. If you were to just rip them all out and you would see how massive the main level is or how massive the basement is. And it's the same with, I think, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Overall, this forms a cohesive unit. What Paul is saying here is very much a one overarching argument. And um, and the Corinthians had written to Paul with question, a question or maybe multiple questions on that which pertains to the Spirit, and his response then is spread really masterfully over these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, and he is showing them that, uh, that he is taking exception to what was happening in their church, and he is informing them about those things that they didn't understand, but he's also showing them what... Uh, you know, how and why they're thinking about spiritual gifts is, is wrong-headed. And the specific problem we said is this abuse and misuse of the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. And it's significant that every list of spiritual gifts in these three chapters uh, 
there's not a lot of, uh, or there is overlap, but there's nothing, there's no one gift that is mentioned each time as it is um, so much as the gift of languages. So we see that that's clearly an issue. And of course, it just consumes what we're going to look at in chapter 14. And that helps us as a reader, as a listener, to discern, well, what is the main point of the text or what is the issue at hand? He gives this, this overview of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He follows that through with, a, with an interlude, a theological interlude in chapter 13 on the necessity and preeminence of love. And then he begins to make in chapter 14 application with a very specific response to what was happening in their church at that time. But the thrust of the correction and the instruction is zeroed in on their misuse and their abuse of tongues, which was a huge problem. Um, that what was going on in their midst was completely out in left field from what God had decided, uh, designed, and it was not being done by any stretch decently or in order, as Paul um, says it must be. So if you look at chapter 12, just kind of set the stage because we, we need to review a little bit uh, what we're looking at. If we jump into chapter 14 without a little review, I think we kind of miss we miss the flow of the argument. In, in the beginning of chapter 12, Paul gives us a litmus test for distinguishing what is a true manifestation of the Spirit and what is not. Um, what, do, who, who is a truly spiritual person and who is not? And we said that the line in the sand is our profession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. And then in chapter uh, 12, verse 4, all the way to the end of the chapter, he gives us this introductory overview and this summary uh, of um, with an explanation, illustration, and application of the diversity of giftings that God gives to His one body, the church. The, the theme, the aim, the theme of chapter twelve really is diversity within unity. That is the predominant theme as it relates to spiritual gifts, and the aim of those many gifts we saw in verse seven is the common good. The edification of others. And tongues, which is what they were really fixated on, which you know was a part of the diversity of ways that God gifted the church at that time, but it wasn't the exclusive way that God gifted that church or any church. And it's the same for us. There is no one gift that rules them all in the sense of that every believer has or every believer would manifest. But with perfect wisdom, the triune God has given us spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, and we should look then to serve others in whatever ways he's done that for us and to take every opportunity that's given to us. That led, of course, into chapter 13, which we know, again, largely because of the chapter divisions, as the chapter of love. And so uh, it's sandwiched between 12 and 14, but its purpose is extremely strategic, and we can't miss that. Paul pens this parenthesis to show us this most excellent way, this way of love, Christian love. And we said love is the highest and chief of the Christian graces. Love is the chief of Christian graces because without love, without Christian love, we are nothing, right? Verses 1 to 3, we could have all the spectacular gifts of speech and all the knowledge and wisdom of heaven and earth, and we could do, you know, just, just give our lives away in, in massive acts of selfless dedication. But if that is not grounded in love for God and love for others, then he says we are nothing. It's simply the one ingredient we cannot live 
without. We said love is the chief of Christian graces. Secondly, because love grounds all manner of holy conduct. And he explains and pictures love. It's patient and kind and not jealous and all these things that it is and is not. And so Paul can line up all these different virtues one after another in those verses. And and he can say, love is this, and love doesn't do that. And, and, he, and those are true statements. It doesn't matter what those virtues are, he could lay those out because in, we said love is the one necessary thing. It is the foundation of all Christian virtue. And that is what uh, holy conduct is built upon. It is not natural. We said it is supernatural. Love, this love that we're speaking about, it is heavenly in origin and is centered on Christ and the gospel. And so as we look to Christ and we see his selfless love, how he took himself from heaven to earth and from the cradle to the cross, then you and I can say, wow, that is love. And that is the kind of love that we are to emulate as we live for for God each and every day. And so Paul can say, let all that you do be done in love. And that's not an overstatement. That's a true statement. We said love is also the chief of the Christian graces because of its permanence. The end of chapter 13, 8 to 13, verses 8 to 13, he makes this argument that is essentially that when all is said and done, all the temporal realities of this world, whatever they are, will come and go. But love, which uniquely stamps the life of heaven, that is what remains. And of course, that makes sense because God himself is love and all that is in God is God. And so... Love never deviates from what it is, and what it is is eternal. Christian love is heaven's life manifest on earth through us, and so it remains even after everything has come to its appointed end. And so, you know, again, the, the argument is this, as, as wonderful as the gifts are, as diverse and effectual as, and awe-inspiring as spiritual gifts are, they are only for a season. They're not forever. And there will come a day when faith will become sight and, and hope will become reality. But when all those things have come and gone, love still remains. And that's, of course, the famous um, verse 13 that we all know so well. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. And the gifts and all those different things that they were so preoccupied with, this church was so preoccupied with, that will all pass away. And so really the application is to strive for what is eternal, what will last. Pour your heart and life into what is, what is everlasting. That takes us then to the doorstep of chapter 14. And what Paul has been doing up to uh, this point has been giving us an overview of spiritual gifts. He's shown us the preeminence and, and importance of love, which ought to saturate everything we do. And now, finally, in chapter 14, he's going to answer the questions uh, that they have and show them what all this means for them as a church. What, what does it mean for them as a body? This is the so what. Chapter 14 is the so what section of this um, this topic. You remember at the end of chapter 12 in verse 31, Paul said, be eager, be eager for spiritual gifts or earnestly desire the greater gifts. And we pointed out that that was actually looking ahead. That, that phrase was looking ahead to chapter 14. Not look, he's not looking back into chapter 12. He had just given this list of um, different gifted men and gifts, apostles, prophets, and miracles, and all this stuff. He's not saying, look at that list, 
and figure out which ones are the most important to you and, you know, go after those things. Now, that, that wasn't, that's, he's not exhorting them to do that. He, he wants them to pursue the greater gifts, and he's going to tell us what those greater gifts are, which we are going to see in just a moment, is the prophetic word heralded in the corporate assembly. You know, they were already chasing after what they thought were the greater gifts. They were trying to, uh, all of them were trying to speak in tongues because it was the most showy, it was the most over-the-top, and the most, um, you know, self, in some ways, self-serving. And, and that, of course, Paul says, is not what they ought to be doing. And so what we see as we come to chapter 14 this morning is Paul answering the question, what does it look like to walk in love when the church gathers? And why? In other words, what truly edifies and advantages others when the church is assembled? What gift best kind of traces the Christ-like pattern of um, humility and looks away from self to sanctify the brethren? That is really the heart of chapter 14. And so the Corinthians thought that was speaking in, in tongues or trying to speak in tongues, but Paul's going to show us that it's actually the the heralding of the prophetic word. So I just want to read verses 1 and 19 to familiarize us with it. We're not going to get through it all this morning, but Paul says this, he says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one, is one who prophesies than one who speaks in a tongue, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air." There are perhaps a great many kind of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, with the Spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say to the Amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
We're going to break this section down into three parts, and we're only going to get through the first part this morning. (laughs) But in verses 1 to 5, we'll see the priority of love through the prophetic word. And then in verses 6 to 12, we're going to see the lack of understanding through unknown languages. And lastly, in 13 to 19, we'll see the edification of others through the engagement of the mind. But the thing that we're most concerned about for our text this morning in verses 1 to 5 is the priority of love through the prophetic word. If you look at verse 1, Paul says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. These opening words pretty much distill Paul's position down as well as you can distill it. Um, Pursue love is a command, obviously, which makes perfect sense based on what he just said in chapter 13. It's the one thing that remains. It's the one thing that's preeminent. It's the one thing we can't live without. And so, of course, we would pursue love. It has the idea of chasing after something with persistence. Uh, In a negative sense, it can mean to persecute. But um, it means to follow after something with an unceasing, never-terminating focus. I'm sure many of you are like me, and you have recurring dreams or occasional nightmares where someone or something is chasing you. Has anyone ever had that experience? Um, And no matter where you go, no matter what you do, they keep coming at you. They keep finding you. They keep, uh, that thing keeps appearing. For me, it's tornadoes. I have this recurring issue where tornadoes are dropping down out of the sky everywhere I go. It just keeps dogging you. And, you know, you go to the store, that person's there. You drive to the mountains, that tornado is there, or whatever. You go to your neighbor's house, whatever. There's this never-ending pursuit. And I think that's a good picture of what this term means. It, it's how you and I ought to pursue love relentlessly. And, and that is what God has called us to. And, the fa- you know, as the fountain of all Christian virtues, and as we said, the foundation of all holy conduct... You know, this love must be our ceaseless pursuit. And, and then with this, Paul links a second command. He says, and earnestly desire, and this is the same term he said in chapter 12 and verse 31. He says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That's why we say that these two are connected, the 13 being sort of an interlude. But the 13, uh, 12, 31 and 14, verse 1, share that term and show that they're, they're connected and, of course, in, I'm not real pleased with how the NAS has translated this because it says yet. And so it has this idea of um, kind of a contrast, but it's really, there is no contrast here, and I don't think it has to be translated that way. These are not, these two commands are not in conflict with one another. They're congruent. Um, so it's kind of, you could translate it, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Think of it as additive not, con- not a contrast. And so he says, desire the greatest gifts. This is kind of how we pursue love, by pursuing the, great, the, the greater gifts of the Holy Spirit that will build up others. Yes, well, what gifts or gifts sh- should those be, or what, what would that be? And he says, especially, even more is kind of how it's, is, is, is even more that you may prophesy. So Paul he, he puts the gold medal over the neck of prophecy and says this is uppermost in the church's gathering. It's not that other gifts aren't necessary. They certainly are. It's not that they can't edify others. Other gifts can't edify the body. They certainly can. 
But those who possess this gift of prophecy were to be given utmost priority in the corporate gathering. Now, we've made the argument that the gift of prophecy has ceased for the New Testament church. And we've made that case based upon its nature and purpose. We looked at that in chapter 13. We saw that the nature and purpose of um, prophecy was to communicate God's word and will to the local church in the absence of the you know, completed canon of Scripture. And uh, so we kind of made that argument. And last week we made the case historically by surveying the way the early church responded to its own sort of charismatic challenge. In the second century of Montanism, this, this um, Montanist was a, was a man who claimed to be, have the prophetic gift, and he had several people that followed him, and, and he got a, a pretty massive following that, that um, you know, carried on for many, many years. But how the church responded to Montanism was a clear testimony that the early church believed that genuine New Testament prophecy was like its Old Testament counterpart, true, without error, and authoritative for the church. And it was always delivered by a prophet in a clear, self-controlled manner. And so when the totality of apostolic truth was written down, we made the case last week, in the text of the New Testament, that gift, that gift ceased and Scripture became, as it is now, the only sufficient, certain, an infallible standard for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so, and we looked at some examples, quotations, and uh, by multiple uh, writers, as well as some other uh, extant witnesses, and we saw that by the middle of the second century, but even maybe earlier than that, the early church understood that the time of the apostles and the prophets had ceased. That's why certain portions of uh, our uh, certain letters were not included in the canon of Holy Scripture. And so this was, this was the church's witness. But the thing is, when Paul is writing these uh, words to Corinth, the gift was very much active. Remember, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament to be written. And so there was a need for prophetic utterance in the corporate gathering at that time. There was a need for the church to be instructed in the truth. But the content of that prophecy would have been divine truth that you and I would recognize today, just in other portions of Scripture. See, God was not giving secret knowledge through prophetic utterance in a local church and then hiding that revelation from everyone else. It was divine revelation that would have been perfectly in sync with the truth we have in the pages of Scripture today. It may not have been worded exactly the same way, but the foundational truths would have been the same. And so when Paul says, give priority to prophecy, for you and for me now, that means giving priority to the word of God in the corporate gathering. That's the application. He's given us everything we need, 2 Peter 1 says, for life and godliness. Um, he's given us, 2 Timothy says, the God-breathed scriptures which he says are sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and to equip us for every good work. There is no need for the prophet in the church today. There is no need for the gift of prophecy in the church today because we have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit to make sense of those scriptures. So we don't need the prophetic gift anymore. 
So the question becomes, as you read, kind of read through this, why does Paul put a premium on prophecy? Why prophecy? Well, he tells us in verses 2, and four, two to 4. For he says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. But For no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophecies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophecies edifies the church. So, in a, in a nutshell, the reason he gives priority to prophecy over the other gift of language, other gifts or gift of languages in particular, is that they had um, is that prophecy was intelligible to other people. Prophecy was understandable, whereas tongues was not. The one activity, speaking in a tongue, that can't strengthen the brethren because it's addressed, as he says here, to God, and no one understands him. The other activity, prophecy, builds up the church because it's addressed to people and speaks edification, encouragement, and comfort to them. Now, there's this debate about whether Paul's talking about the true gift of languages throughout this this section, or some counterfeit gift of tongues that mimicked and parroted the uh, prophetic utterances that characterized so much of false worship. And on balance, it's best to understand Paul's description of tongues, particularly in verses uh, 2 to 5, it's best to understand Paul's description of tongues here as an indictment against them as a for a counterfeit gift of tongues. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'll give you several reasons. One, first, Paul says, one who speaks in a tongue speaks to, not to men, but to God, because no one understands. The true gift of languages, like all spiritual gifts, serve what purpose? It was to what? Build others up, to edify others. We saw that back in chapter 12, verse 7. If no one understands, then no one is being built up. And that defies the God-given purpose for the gift. And so this doesn't seem to be a true manifestation of the gift of languages. Secondly, when Paul speaks about the true gift of languages in this section, further down as well, he speaks about it in using the plural. He speaks of tongues, plural. Why plural? Well, because there are many kinds of known languages. There are, multi, you know, we, we understand that. There's, who, who knows how many languages there are in the world and dialects. But when Paul references what was happening in Corinth, he speaks about it in the singular. He says, speaking in a tongue in verse 2. Uh, the one in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue, he speaks about it in the singular, which makes sense because there aren't different kinds of gibberish languages in the world. There's how many gibberish languages? Just one, right? They're they're just different instances of the same thing. Different babies babbling. We we understand this just intuitively. The things that are coming out of their mouth, it's not different kinds of babbling. It's just all baby talk. So I think that there's there's something to be said for how Paul translates singular versus plural throughout this section. Third, Paul says that the, the person speaking in a tongue... And by speaking in a tongue, he refer, he's, I think he's implying the counterfeit version of the real gift. He says he speaks mysteries in his spirit, verse 2. 
The mysteries Paul's talking about here are similar to those associated with pagan mystery religions, which in you know so many in Corinth were so familiar with. So familiar with. And those pagan mysteries, unlike the mystery of the gospel, which was revealed to all God's people, though it had previously been hidden to all God's people, those pagan mysteries intentionally remain mysterious. That's the point. They were, they, they were these unknown truths that supposedly only the initiated, only the elite were the ones who would know these things. And so in some ways, I think the word mystery in English is a little misleading. It could be kind of like cryptic secrets, you know, like there's like in-group language and out-group language. And that's the idea here. So you remember back in verse 2, Paul is emphasizing the lack of understanding by others and even by the person speaking these unintelligible utterances. And so they're speaking mysteries, things that they don't understand, that no one understands. And I'm sure that there were many in Paul's day who were engaging in this counterfeit gift of tongues, who were appealing to the fact that they were praying in an angelic language, or that they were praying with groanings too deep for words, to quote Paul in Romans 8. But again, all of that defies the purpose of the gift, which was to build up others. There isn't a single instance that I'm aware of in the New Testament where Jesus or an apostle prayed to God in some cryptic prayer language that no one understood. Now, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but the point is like, they're always prayed in unknown language, understandable languages. Even Christ's high priestly prayer, there's no indication in the Gospels that he was praying in some foreign tongue that no one understood. That would betray the reality of how John recorded those things. For many of the Corinthians, though, what mattered was the emotional experience itself. They didn't seem to care that the mysteries had no meaning to them or to others. But in contrast to this false gift of tongues, where no one understood and no one was built up, Paul says the one who prophecies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, verse 3, and consolation. So spiritual gifts are meant to accomplish something. They're meant to accomplish something spiritually. They're meant to accomplish something practically. They're always meant to be beneficial to others, believer or unbeliever. So let me raise a couple of objections and answer those objections. Objection number one, you say in verse four, Paul says the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So isn't that something worthwhile? Um, doesn't Paul seem to be commending the usefulness of speaking in a tongue as, as maybe some kind of a private prayer language for personal devotion? And to that, I would say no. I would say no. This is, again, I think it's, it's within the realm of possibility to interpret this and, and translate this and understand this as, as Paul speaking with a tone of sarcasm, similar to what he does in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, where he says, you are, you know, you are rich, you become kings without us, right? He doesn't mean that that's actually the case. He's simply kind of parroting their attitude and showing how absurd it is. Because as we'll see further down, the true gift of language has always had to be interpreted to be understood. 
So without interpretation, they can't possibly edify anyone, including the person speaking them. Further down in verse 22, Paul says it makes clear that the true gift of languages is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Okay, so, so that starts to chip away at this idea of self-edification. Paul is referring to the supposed, verse 4, supposed value the Corinthians placed on this counterfeit gift. The gratification of these individuals, they were, was that what they were experiencing was nothing more than self-satisfaction, which in many cases stemmed from an emotional experience rather than any real spiritual edification. God's gift to his church is for the building up of others. And it's in spiritual fellowship with one another, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. That's what causes the growth of the body of itself in love. You know, that's Ephesians 4. So there's no evidence that a private unintelligible prayer language is a genuine manifestation of this gift of languages. So I think it's best to understand the beginning part of verse 4 as Paul speaking sort of tongue-in-cheek, sarcastically. If he's edifying anybody, he's only edifying himself. A second objection that's often raised, doesn't Paul want everyone to speak in tongues? Verse 5, he says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Why would he say that if he didn't want them to do it? Well, to that I would reply, Paul was wishing the impossible, so to speak, for the sake of rhetorical emphasis. Because just as quickly as he says that, you'll notice he pivots and wishes even more that they would prophesy. Because greater is the one who prophesies, he says, than him who speaks in a tongue. He just spent 27 verses in chapter 12 telling us that all Christians don't have the same gifts. All do not have the same gifts, do they? All are not apostles. All are not prophets. All are not teachers. All are not workers of miracles. All are not having gifts of healings. All do not speak with tongues, and so on. There is no way Paul is suggesting here that his wisdom is greater than the triune God who gifts to each one just as he wills. That would be presumptuous on Paul's part. That's not what he's saying. Paul's simply making clear that he didn't despise the genuine gift of languages when it was truly empowered by the Holy Spirit. You could paraphrase verse 5 this way. If the Holy Spirit chose to bestow the gift of languages on every one of you, I'd be fine with that. But if you're going to clamor for a gift, it would be better that you clamor for the gift of prophecy, which is superior on account of the fact that it edifies the whole church. The only exception being unless he or someone else interprets so that the church may be built up. So in a situation where someone's interpreting the gift of languages, the true gift of languages, with a true gift of interpretation then that word becomes essentially identical to prophecy because it's God's revelation to his church for building up. And he's going to get into this in more detail later on. But the bottom line is that the true gift of languages, like all the gifts, was meant to build others up. It was meant to build others up. This spectacular character of speaking in tongues seems to have really 
drawn in the Corinthians, just as it does draw in so many Christians today who claim Christ. But Paul is unequivocally asserting the superiority of prophecy unless there was interpretation. If tongues were interpreted, the hearers were edified, and there was no great difference from prophecy. Both were revelatory speech. Both communicated a true and authoritative message from God to his people. But if someone claimed to be speaking in an unknown tongue, or speaking in a tongue, as Paul says, claimed that we were speaking privately to God, uttering mysteries that no one understood, and only building up themselves and no one else, then there was every reason to believe it was a counterfeit manifestation of the true gift of languages. The prophetic word, which was intelligible to all and edifying to all who are born again, was superior, Paul says, to any manifestation of this gift of languages, real and counterfeit. And this is consistent then, to wrap up our point, this is consistent with the more excellent way of love, right? Which is concerned not with yourself, but who? Others. This is what Paul has been getting at. True Christian love is not concerned with your building up, your well-being, your welfare, so much as it is concerned about the welfare of others for God's glory. And so that is consistent with what Paul is confronting here. Scripture, we have to make point, I have to make this point. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. We cannot parachute in, take a verse here, take a verse there, and um, escalate out of there, and then ignore all the other things God's communicated in his word about gifts or anything else, these things that put guardrails on our interpretations of those few verses. But sadly, that happens a lot. It happens so often. I mean, if you, if you take chapter 12, verse 7 at its face value, then, then you have to understand that the gifts are going to be outward-focused and edifying to the church. If they don't fit that criteria, they can't be a true manifestation of the gift. And so much of what claims to be the gift of tongues simply fails to meet the biblical mandate, the biblical criteria. Does the person, as the tongue speaker, have any understanding of what's being said? Is there someone to interpret? Are others being edified? Is there a recognition that not everyone in the church is going to be gifted in the same way? Does what they are saying also, whatever they may claim it means, does that agree with Holy Scripture? If the answers to those questions are no then in what sense can they be a genuine gifting of the Holy Spirit? I think there's a tendency on the part of some of our charismatic brothers and sisters to fall headlong into the same error that the Corinthians did, where a message in tongues is held out as the surest evidence, the surest evidence of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in a given context. Paul would disagree with that assessment. He would disagree with that assessment. It is the prophetic word heralded for edification, for exhortation, and comfort that is to be front and center in the life of his church. 
And the clearest evidence of the Holy Spirit's gifting and work is his Spirit-inspired word contained in Scripture falling on Spirit-indwelt ears in genuine hearts who believe, promoting and empowering obedience for the building up of the body in love. That is the truest evidence of the Spirit's work in the church, the sanctification of his people. And so the priority of love instrumentally is through the prophetic word, this word that we have that is more sure, as Peter says, than even his own experience. You'll notice that 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 statement by Peter in 2 Peter falls uh, right on the heels of his describing his experience of seeing Christ in his kind of transfigured glory on the mount. And he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure, more sure than experiences, more sure than even what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears. And so, you know, Paul's going to go on here in these verses 6 to 19 and, and even into verse 25. He's going to explain how He's going to give some wonderful illustrations and then draw it all together to say how the mind and the heart work as one. The mind and the spirit work together. They're not, it's not one or the other. It's both. We'll have to wait until next Sunday to pick that up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this corrective, this reminder that the word is effectual. And it's effectual as it, as it does its work in our minds that moves our affections, that drives our will to live for you and to obey these things. The truest evidence of the Spirit's work in your church is indeed the sanctification of your people. That that is your desire. That is what you long for, to see us um, set apart from sin to God. And these things are signs and wonders and things that took place, we see in the book of Acts and we read about in 1 Corinthians and some other places. These things were necessary to authenticate, to clarify that the messengers were true messengers, speaking a true word from you. But now that we have that word, and that word has been received and recognized by your church and handed down to us providentially through the centuries, and and now we can study it and, and exhort and preach and proclaim it, we pray that we would take that word to heart and make it our, the centerpiece of our worship, of our private devotions even as we study it, meditate on it, hide it in our hearts, that we might obey it for your honor and your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.